It's time for Legally Speaking on CFAX 1070, where we're joined by Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, to take a look at the latest legal affairs of the week. Michael, good morning. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, uh, great to be here. What's on the agenda for this week? Well, the first case, I think, is a really interesting one that's been uh, rolling on now for, I think, something like 18 years, which is hard to believe. Uh, the fact pattern arose back in 2003. Uh, and it uh, was the result of a, a strike going on in the uh, sawmill uh, industry, uh, NBC, a strike that started in November of 20, uh, 2003. Mm-hmm. Uh, and eventually by December of 2003, the government intervened, uh, had some negotiations with the parties and had uh, made uh, an agreement that would involve the uh, strike being ended by legislation ordering everyone back to work. Now. It was going to take a couple of days for that legislation to be, uh, in fact, passed in an evening sitting of the legislature. And most of the uh, union locals involved with the dispute went back to work upon announcing the agreement. But at least one of them said, no, we're not going back until the legislation is actually passed. Uh, and then there were some, uh, I think, can only be described as unfortunate events uh, that occurred at a uh, sawmill uh, in uh, the Lower Mainland. And what was found to have occurred is that uh, a man who went by, that goes by the name of Sonny, mm-hmm. good name, um, was the uh, president of a union local uh, for one of the, uh, for the local uh, that didn't want to go back until the legislation was passed. Uh, and it appears to be common ground that Sonny uh, managed to lead a whole group of uh, union members and others, presumably, to a mill in the lower mainland uh, and essentially forced their way into the mill. Hmm. Um, And there was a physical confrontation that went on in the mill, uh, shutting it down. uh, And uh, then there was litigation flowing from that. A whole bunch of people who worked in the mill that was uh, shut down effectively by force um, sued uh, the uh, union local that had uh, taken the mill, essentially, mm-hmm. um, uh, and uh, sued people, including Sonny, uh, who was the uh, the leader of the group of people that stormed the mill, basically, uh, and was found to have uh, physically assaulted people who were uh, working there uh, in order to shut it down. And so much litigation went on uh, about that. Uh, but uh, ultimately, uh, it was found uh, that uh, both uh, Sonny and uh, the uh, union local that he was uh, representing uh, were responsible for what happened. And so there was a judgment for several hundred thousand dollars against both the uh, union local and Sonny. <laughs> and in fact, the union local who paid out uh, for the uh, claims by all of these workers who indicated they were battered and injured and the mill getting shut down and so forth, also turned on Sonny and said, Mm. look, uh, you know, you weren't authorized to do this, uh, and so you should pay us back uh, for all of these losses. Uh, And so such such was the decision back in 2007. But the reason why the case is still going uh, and uh, just had another decision in it um, is because of what Sonny uh, did uh, prior to that litigation starting. And what Sonny did is that he transferred 
uh, all of his interests in a whole number of properties uh, over in the Lower Mainland, seven or eight different uh, properties of some value, uh, and shares in a uh, holding company that owned um, yet more property in the Lower Mainland, Hmm. to his son uh, for no compensation whatsoever. And so he had no assets. And Mr. Uh, and Sonny then declared bankruptcy in 2013. And so his position was, well, I have nothing. I don't have any assets. I've declared bankruptcy. You can't have your some $437,000. I have nothing. Mm. Well, let me tell you that the law has thought of that. <laughs> you, uh, you can't make yourself judgment-proof by simply transferring all of your assets to somebody for no consideration and then saying, well, who cares what happens in court? I don't have anything. It's all owned by my fill-in-the-blank son, wife, brother, mother, whatever it might be. Yes. And so the application that was just decided uh, was an application uh, pursuant uh, to uh, an act called the uh, the Fraudulent Conveyance Act, Hmm. and it provides for uh, setting aside and voiding uh, transactions like that, uh, where somebody is uh, conveying property uh, in order to uh, prevent uh, a judgment uh, creditor or somebody else from being able to collect. Uh, and so this was an application uh, by the various people who were uh, owed money as a result of that earlier court decision to set aside what Sonny had done uh, in terms of giving all of his assets to his son and then declaring bankruptcy. Um, and at this most recent trial, uh, at issue was why did Sonny do that, right? There can yes. be circumstances where somebody for some legitimate purpose, you know, sells their house or does something, which is not for the intention of defeating their creditors. Yes. And that's fine. Uh, and that's what Sonny tried to claim here. He claimed, well, this was, uh, you know, uh, my uh, grandfather's wish that uh, the properties go to my son when he turned 18. And so that's just what I was doing. I had no concern about uh, being sued or owing money. I wasn't trying to defeat the creditors. I was just doing what my uh, my grandfather wanted. Um, that didn't get far. Uh, the judge found that uh, Sonny had serious problems with his uh, credibility. One, I must say, I smiled at uh, one of the facts that he was cross-examined on is that prior to declaring bankruptcy, he applied for a credit card and claimed to be the owner of a sawmill, making $200,000 a year, when in fact he did not own a sawmill, earned almost nothing, and then racked up a debt of $12,000 on said credit card before going bankrupt. That didn't do much to help his credibility. Uh, I, I just I just love that. It's like, no, 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 you, you have to understand, Your Honor, I was committing fraud when I made those claims. I didn't actually have that money. It's like, oh, wait, I guess right. I shouldn't admit to that. Yeah, so there's always a good, uh, if you're looking to assess somebody's credibility, you might want to assess the difference between their application for credit uh, and the form they filled out when somebody's seeking, you know, fill in the blank, child support or spousal support or, or something like this. Often they're markedly different. Yeah. Um, the judge commented uh, further on cross-examination of Sonny in terms of affidavits that he'd filed in tax court, describing his testimony as cavalier, disdainful, uh, about the all the falsehoods contained in various things he was claiming. So the bottom line is that the judge found that, look, uh, you clearly conveyed these things to your son for no consideration to try to get out of having to pay for the losses sustained when you organized a mob of people to storm the uh, sawmill uh, in Vancouver. You were clearly aware that that was a, a risk that you just put yourself in by taking those actions. 
and so as a result, uh, pursuant to the Fraudulent Conveyance Act, the judge set aside those transactions, so they're as if they didn't occur. Okay. The judge also found uh, sort of a belt and suspenders that there was a concept of a resulting trust that flowed from when the father, Sonny, gave those things to his son, uh, and uh, that in part turned on evidence from the uh, young son who testified, you know, he didn't think that they were just his, that he could, you know, sell the properties and do whatever he wanted with the money. Yeah that really he was just holding them for his dad. And so now all these years later, this decision uh, will mean that uh, the uh, people who were injured in the storming of the mill and the mill that lost money from the shutdown can be paid, and the union uh, local who wound up uh, paying out on the basis that it was vicariously liable for what its president had done, storming the mill, uh, will be able to collect uh, the money back uh, from Sonny. uh, And from the sounds of it, Uh, He owns effectively now, again, all of these properties all over uh, the lower mainland. Uh, And so there's uh, probably a realistic chance that the $437,000 is going to go to uh, the various people who got the judgment. And so the uh, takeaway uh, from a life perspective uh, should be, if you think you can avoid responsibility for something you've done by just giving all of your assets to somebody else, uh, that's been thought of. Uh, you may slow things down a little bit, uh, but uh, ultimately all of that is going to get unwound uh, and he'll wind up uh, having to pay the judgment and wind up paying the costs for all of this uh, litigation uh, that's been going on for years in an effort to uh, extract the money for what he did uh, all the way back uh, in 2004. Yeah, it's uh, as a general rule, it's helpful, I would suspect, to consider that as as devious and brilliant as one may consider a plan, somebody somewhere has probably already thought of it and tried it at least once. Yes, indeed. The, the other thing I must say, I smiled as I read the original trial decision, uh, and there are all of these people being sued, dozens of them. One of the things the judge points out is that Sonny alone was the one fellow who didn't have a lawyer helping him back at the time. So perhaps he's gotten some legal advice all the way back in uh, 2003. He would have realized that his devious plan to give all of his assets to his son was not going to make him Teflon from the perspective of the court proceeding. Uh, And, uh, you know, people have thought of that one. All right. Let's take a quick break. Legally speaking, we'll continue in just a moment with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Back to Legally Speaking here on CFAX 1070. Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Michael, what's next on the agenda? Uh, Well, the next case on the agenda, I think, has some particular uh, resonance given uh, the current uh, discussions about COVID vaccines and one of the defendants in this case. Um, So this was a a case uh, involving a a young lady, Lakota James, who's a uh, uh, Aboriginal woman in B.C., who is suing uh, Johnson & Johnson. Uh, as a result of uh, having suffered a, a very serious uh, brain uh, a blood clot that went to her brain a very short time after she started using uh, a contraceptive patch manufactured by Johnson & Johnson, hmm. uh, an Evra patch, E-V-R-A. Uh, and so the case has been uh, marching along for the past few years, and the most recent part of it uh, was a Uh, unsuccessful effort by Johnson & Johnson to try to strike out the claim or stop it. Um, And a large part of the argument that Johnson & Johnson was making, which is, again, I think, resonant in the current context, is that they were relying upon 
a warning uh, entitled it, they described as a black box warning because literally it's in a black box uh, in the packaging for the contraceptive uh, patch. And the warning is significant because as we've talked about previously in the context of uh, suing over medical malpractice, yes, uh, one of the things that would be looked at is, you know, did the person, uh, was the person properly informed of the risks and would they have, uh, or if they weren't, would they have undergone the procedure had the uh, person been properly informed of the risks? And so Johnson & Johnson, one of their arguments here was, look, uh, we put this black box warning uh, in the package with the uh, uh, contraceptive patch. Um, and so uh, you should find that the person has, uh, this young lady had accepted the risk when she decided to start using the patch. And you ought to therefore disallow her claim from continuing. That was one of their core arguments here. And I must say, reading this warning, indeed, that the judge reproduced it helpfully uh, in the decision. Mm-hmm. It is indeed in a black box, uh, but I must say, when you start reading the thing, it speaks about the risk of venosis thermo thermoembolism, thromboembolism. I believe thromboembolism. Yes. I counted it up. That that word has fifteen letters in it, <laughs> and, and it go, and it goes on to uh, discuss various studies that found different percentages of risk for that particular thing to have occurred. Yes, um, and I must say, uh, reading that thing, when you look at the context of you know, this was a, a young lady who had a grade 10 education. Yeah. Uh, you hand somebody a, a warning with a black box with that term, which I can't pronounce. Um, uh, and you say, well, look, uh, clearly you've accepted all of these uh, risks. Um, you know, that I think is at the very least a, a, a triable issue. Um, you know, the in fact, uh, what she experienced uh, only a very short time after she started to use this uh, patch uh, she had a serious headache, couldn't get out of bed. The side of her face drooped. Oh, vision wow. was blurred. She began convulsing, oh. and she wound up in hospital with a brain clot oh, no. and required numerous procedures and operations to try to relieve the pressure on her brain, oh. a horrific outcome which is continuing to have an impact on her. Mm. Um, and, and I must say, when you look at the black box and the 15-letter words and the discussions of various studies in it, uh, it uh, at least uh, to my mind, that doesn't seem clear that somebody reading this would appreciate that that's the risk uh, that was being uh, described uh, in the most clinical of terms in the black box. And so the judge who heard this application by Johnson & Johnson uh, dismissed it. Uh, and it doesn't mean that uh, Miss James is going to be uh, compensated for what happened to her yet, but it means that the uh, claim can continue and Johnson and Johnson wasn't able to strike it out uh, by, amongst other things, pointing to the uh, black box warning. And I, I should say, if I had a, a generalized piece of advice to Johnson and Johnson and otherwise, perhaps when you're describing risks to people in that way, perhaps do it in language which uh, an ordinary, reasonable person could look at uh, when making a decision about, you know, do I wish to use the patch or should I be taking the pill? Uh, and rather than using 15-letter words, perhaps make it a little clearer to people uh, what exactly they are uh, risking. Uh, and so all of that, of course, is, I think, very timely, uh, given the current discussion about putting warning labels on various things uh, in terms of uh, uh, vaccines. And I think it's important that that be done in a clear fashion. 
uh, even where in that case it may be an exceedingly low risk, at the very least, you ought to do it with language that a, a reasonable person could read it and make a proper judgment for themselves. Yeah, it's interesting here. I'm just looking because venous thromboembolism, it talks about how one study found um, compared to current users, the oral contraceptives odds ratio, it says 2.46. And then there's a confidence interval here, 95%. Like I, most people don't even know what a confidence interval is. I don't think an ordinary person, as you mentioned, would be able to read this and, and comprehend what it's actually saying or what information is being conveyed. Indeed. I also like how they uh, shorten the 15-letter word into VTE, <laughs> making it seem much more friendly and approachable. But perhaps if you described it as, you know, blood clot slash brain in, you know, aneurysm or something of that sort, people yeah. might have a much better idea of what exactly was going on. And if you present it in a way where somebody could actually assess the risk more reasonably to make a decision about, hey, do I wish the patch or do I wish the pill when there's clearly an alternative uh, to this um, I think that would be the, the fair and reasonable way to approach it. All right. What's next on the agenda? Uh, well, the final case on the agenda is one which uh, comes out of the uh, tragic uh, uh, case of the murder of uh, real estate agent uh, Lindsay Buziak yes. uh, back in uh, 2008. Uh, and the particular court application uh, about that case, uh, which was just decided, uh, involved uh, an application by a local news organization uh, to uh, look for um, access uh, to a whole series of uh, applications and orders that have been made as part of that, uh, the ongoing uh, investigation. In yes. particular documents, there are 35 of them which have been sealed, Included uh, include production orders, search warrants, um, judicial authorizations, and so there's a lot of uh, material uh, there as part of that uh, investigation. And the application was made in the context of the general idea that uh, court proceedings are to be public, presumptively. Yes. Uh, and the court agreed with that, right? The public must have the ability to, you know, scrutinize the justice system, and that's important to enhance public confidence in it. We don't want secret uh, decisions being made. And you would ordinarily only have a, a ban on publication where it's necessary and there's a real uh, issue about uh, trial fairness or other things of that sort, and there needs to be a weighing of the uh, benefit and uh, uh, harm uh, that flows from doing things in a secret way. Yes. And here, there are a couple, there are a couple of interesting elements to this. First of all, this application uh, isn't done. This was sort of an application to make the application in the sense that the lawyers acting for the news organization we're asking that they be provided with a copy of all of these um, documents which have been sealed on their undertaking not to disclose them to anyone, including their clients, uh, but simply so that they might be aware of what's in them so that they could make submissions to the judge about why they ought to be unsealed or some of them unsealed or some of them unsealed in a redacted way. Uh, and that concept of an undertaking is an important one, and it yes. goes to the heart of how you know, sort of many legal proceedings operate. An undertaking is a promise from a lawyer, which if you don't uh, strictly comply with it, uh, you can be professionally disciplined uh, for doing so. And so undertakings are used for all matter of serious uh, matters where there's a whole lot at stake, mm -hmm. uh, you know, even in, straight, even in routine things like uh, conveying a property, for example. That process operates on lawyers giving undertakings, saying things like, look, 
I'll undertake to convey this property if you undertake to pay me the, you know, $2 million into trust to give to my client. Yes. And the system works because you can count on um, a lawyer abiding by their undertaking, right? It's just, it is right at the core of what the lawyer is obliged to do. Uh, and so the lawyers here are arguing, look, um, you can use an undertaking, disclose it to us, we can have access to it and then make submissions. And indeed, various other people have access to the uh, material, including, of course, the lawyer for the provincial government who's resisting the release and the lawyer for the police who are resisting the release of it. Um, and so that's what the judge was struggling with um, here, because there is a long history of those things working. Uh, but ultimately, the judge found that uh, because there could be inadvertent uh, disclosure by somebody, yeah. uh, including, frankly, by the police or the Crown or other people involved, but the judge found that the larger the circle of people uh, you have uh, sort of inside the tent, <laughs> the greater the prospect is that there could be uh, a mistaken or inadvertent disclosure. Yeah, And the judge also averted to the, this concept of what was described as a mosaic effect whereby you know if you give uh, if you wind up having enough pieces even if they're redacted you can sometimes put things together and make you know come to conclusions about you know who the suspect is or you know that kind of thing uh and the judge also made reference to the fact that the role of people in an investigation can change somebody who might at this point appear to be uh, a witness could yeah. later turn into the accused or yeah. something right yeah. it's interesting and so for yeah. For all of those reasons, the judge found that even with the undertaking, the uh, these documents could not be released uh, to the lawyers acting for the news organization. And so there will be a further application to try to get the uh, material released in some way or other. Uh, but, of course, the lawyers doing that are going to be in a, a pretty difficult spot, yeah. uh, trying to make submissions about how these things should be edited or what's in them or why they might or might not. Uh, need to be uh, kept secret when they're not allowed to see them. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, that's still going to go on, uh, but uh, for the reasons uh, discussed, uh, it's going to go on in a way that might not be as fulsome as what would occur if the lawyers were able to actually see what they're arguing about. Yeah, look, it's interesting because it looks like they tried to to use the Degonier-Mentuck test, but then the Crown argued that the test does not apply for the motion because it's a purely procedural issue. It looks like the court sided with it. This is a fascinating case. We're almost out of time, Michael. Any final thoughts? No, I guess they say the upside of it is it clearly does appear to be, and the judge found, the investigation is an active and, on, and ongoing one. Yeah. Uh, and so, well, I, there's no doubt frustration by many people affected by this about how long it's taken. It's clear from this decision that the judge has concluded that this is indeed an active and ongoing investigation. So there may well be more. Michael Mulligan with Legally Speaking for Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Thank you for your time as always. Until next week. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure. Stay All right. safe. You too. Bye now.